Hi everyone and welcome to Global Careers Calls, the podcast of the University of London Career Service, where we uncover inspirational career journeys from around the world. In the seventh season, Dr. Edwin Ma, Careers Consultant at the University of London, will accompany us in the world of humanities and help us to explore some of the more unusual careers paths that University of London students and graduates have taken in this field. We'll explore the unique skills that humanities graduates develop, discover the uncommon professional journeys that our speakers have taken, and how their humanities degrees have been pivotal in their careers, both within and beyond the humanistic field. So whether you study the humanities subject, or are just interested in finding out more about a different sector, stay tuned to discover the unique career choices of our guest. In this episode, Dr. Edwin will interview Sarah Pink, a heritage consultant who recently moved to Saudi Arabia to work for an energy firm. Sarah worked in information management for many years in different parts of the globe, building a vast knowledge in archive and library management. With her, we'll discover the recruitment process in the Middle East, the working culture in her new hosting country, the new trends and opportunities in the arts and heritage sector, and the importance of networking and human connection in shaping her career. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Thank you so much, Sarah, for joining me today to uh, talk about your career journey. Could you tell us, Sarah, where are you phoning in from today? Hi, Edwin. Firstly, let me just say thank you so much for this opportunity. It's really a pleasure to reconnect with the University of London. I am actually phoning in this afternoon for me from Saudi Arabia. I'm in a part of the country called Man. Fantastic. And can you tell us about your current role over in Saudi Arabia? So I'm working for an energy company and I'm in quite a new role from the roles that I've been doing previously. I'm a heritage consultant, so I'm not an employee. I've come in literally on a consulting role, just on a 12-month contract, to really help the company to create something that they don't have at the moment, which is an archive, a corporate archive of all of their documents that will really help them to be able to talk about their legacy, their history, their past, which obviously will help them talk about their present and their future. So it's an absolutely fantastic opportunity. They've not tried it before. It's a brand new role. And being a heritage consultant, it actually combines lots of different skill sets that I've picked up along the way. Amazing. And can you tell us how you found that job? It sounds like sort of a very new and exciting opportunity there. It does, doesn't it, Edwin? And I'm going to say something that probably is not not what's expected or not particularly exciting, but the answer is LinkedIn. <laughs> so my last three roles, actually, which have all been international, have all been via somebody contacting me through my profile on LinkedIn. Um, exactly the same from Saudi Arabia. So I was contacted through my profile and asked if I was interested in a particular role. And it wasn't a scam, I'm pleased to say. And then, and then I came here. And being the Middle East, which I'm sure we'll talk about a bit later, these things take a, a very long time. The recruitment process in the Middle East really does take several months. So it was almost a year after I'd been approached and gone through the process before I actually ended up here in country. Amazing. And in terms of your sort of typical day or week at work, how does that look for you? That's a very interesting question, Edwin. Oh, it's so hard to answer because every week and every day is, is quite different. The one thing that is stable each week is that one day a week, I work somewhere else on, on campus, which is really wonderful. So there is a large cultural heritage center here, and it's called Ithra. It's open to the public, and it comprises of a museum, a library, a large archive. We have about three or four galleries with a theater and exhibition center. And it's really a wonderful place. It's kind of out in the desert. 
in a really striking building, one of the best buildings actually I've ever seen. It did win quite a few awards at the time for just the, the way that the the light and the heat reflect and how it all gels together. And one day a week I worked there in the archive and, and library. So the rest of the time I'm kind of an office-based person in a big tower block sitting at my desk and one day a week I'm surrounded by archives and museums and libraries, which is wonderful. In terms of the actual work, it can really change. I write a lot of strategy documents to help establish the archive. So things like election development policies, retention of material, partners, kind of collaborative statements of work. And then other days I will go to the warehouse and I will open a lot of boxes and have a look through, see what's in there, find some papers that no one knew we had. I might even put some books on shelves. So it, it kind of really depends. I mean, one of the cultural differences, I think, working in the Middle East and in an organization like this is that relationships are really key to everything you do. So a lot of the time, it's not so much emails or, or phone calls to get work done. It's finding someone, sitting down, having a cup of coffee. Coffee is incredibly important here. <laughs> and, and, and getting your work done through personal relationships. Um, so I do spend quite a lot of my time drinking coffee, but it is all in the interest of, uh, of getting the job done. <laughs> Fantastic. And of course, very good coffee in the Middle East as well. So something that I've been reading up a lot on Saudi Arabia recently is how much the country's been investing in culture, heritage, sport, etc. as it's sort of moving into the future decades of its role as a modern country. Ness, it sounds like you've really sort of tapped into that zeitgeist with your current job. Yes, Edwin, I think that is true. It's a very interesting country to live and work in. You know, before here, I was in Qatar, so I'm not a complete stranger to the goal. But I'm from London. So, you know, I think we all hear certain things about Saudi and we're, we're not quite sure what's happening, what isn't happening. And I've only been here three months, so I'm quite new to Saudi. But you can see that there is so much change. And I think it's really happened in the last five years. That's, that's what, I'm, what I'm hearing. So if I give you an example of, of my life and, and work here in Saudi, I can drive. There's no restriction on women driving. There's no dress code, particularly. So the office that I work in, it's a very busy, very busy place. Lots of people here and they're really from everywhere. So I work with a lot of Saudis, a lot of Saudi women. Some of them are wearing the full hijab and, and abaya. Many of them are not. It's really Western dress. So everybody wears the same as you would expect in an office in Singapore or in London. A lot of the women are in very senior positions. So my boss is a woman and uh, a lot of decision making is is coming from the women rather than the, the men, which is quite an interesting culture. And there are also a huge number of expats here. So I'm mixing with people from all different countries and cultures. And, you know, the Saudi culture is really hospitable, really open to different ways of doing things and different viewpoints. Everyone is so incredibly welcoming and it doesn't feel at all like you might think if you have not been here, it doesn't feel in any way restrictive. It's very international focused. So like you said, Edwin, with the interest in sport, I'm actually going to see Tyson Fury in a boxing match in Riyadh in a couple of weeks time. <laughs> and obviously in Saudi, they also have the Formula One now in Jeddah, which is at the other end of the country from where I am. So it feels very international focused. They are looking outward, not inward. Lots of development as well. Lots of projects like Neon, if listeners have heard of that, which means there are a lot of opportunities at the moment for expats to work in Saudi Arabia. I think that there is a push at the company that I'm working at to bring in expats who are experts in their field so that we can you know, share our ways of doing things and collaboration and, and both learn from each other. So it's an incredibly exciting time to be in the kingdom right now, for sure. Fantastic. And, you know, that's so exciting to hear all of those things going on and sort of all of those opportunities that are there as well. And I wondered if you had any advice for people who are either currently working in the Middle East or who are perhaps considering a move to the region. 
Yes, absolutely. I really like that question. I would say if you're not here and you're thinking about it, do try it. It's really such an interesting region uh, to come to in the Gulf. It is not restrictive. It's very easy to, to live in. Obviously, the language is not a barrier. Everybody speaks English. So although the language of the, of the Gulf and Middle East, obviously, is, is Arabic, what's interesting in my previous two roles, both in Qatar and now in Saudi, the language of business and the language of the office, therefore, it is actually English. So all of your communications will be in English. From my experience, you would not find yourself in a meeting where um, people were not speaking English. Um, you're very welcome here. People want you to come. They want to learn with you, learn about you. It's not actually a difficult country to integrate into either. And getting a driving license is very easy to do. Driving is, is not, it's not difficult getting around. You know, we have everything in Saudi that you would have, say, in London. So I use Uber. I order my, my takeaways to come in in the same way that, that we normally do. There's a big Ikea over the road from, from where I am. All of the big chains that you would expect are here. And there's really nothing that you would find in London that you can't find here, in my experience. The working hours are probably the one thing that's quite different in that we work, we start work very early in the Middle East. So we start work at 7am and we finish at 4pm. So you would be at your desk normally by about quarter to seven in the morning, but you finish at four o'clock. There is the culture, both in Qatar and Saudi is very much that when you finish at four, you, you finish. So you're expected to work during working hours, but there isn't really a culture of long evenings or weekend work. So you finish at four, you've got the rest of the, the day ahead of you. And of course, our weekends are Friday and Saturday. So you do work on a Sunday, but you get used to it. <laughs> you get used to it so quickly that actually it feels strange when, when people in, in the UK are, are, are up on Sundays. So I would say if you're interested in it, just do it. Just have a go. I don't think you will regret it. And, you know, obviously, if you're out here already in country and if you're unsure about how to get things done or, you know, how to move along with your projects, going back to what I said earlier, build relationships in the Gulf. It's so very important, I think, to build those personal relationships, get to know people, take people for coffee, go with people when, when you're invited. And yeah, just the more people you know, that's how things are done here. It's not through email, it's through conversation. Like the old days, really, when we, before we had all this technology. <laughs> that's really useful to hear and sort of really interesting to hear how important you're finding those sort of relationship um, building within, your, within the region and within the sector that you're working in there. And something else that you mentioned, Sarah, was that the recruitment process can be quite drawn out in the Middle East. That um, for you, you said it sort of took several months to go from being offered the position through to sort of starting. Do you sort of have any advice for people who might be going through that recruitment process on how to present themselves as effectively as possible and how to sort of keep the stamina to, to get through it? Yes, everyone, thank you. Yes, it really does take some time. So with Qatar, it took around about six months, but with Saudi, close to one year. And this is not unusual at all. This is, you know, part of the course, I think. So I would just say patience is really important. Things move, move very slowly in, in the Gulf in terms of recruitment. There's a lot of approvals. There's a lot of sign-off. There's a lot of paperwork that needs to be done. And I think it's, it also takes so long in the Gulf because there are a lot of things that need to happen before you can get your residency permit to, to move to the Gulf. So medicals and police clearance and your University of London degree certificate will need to be attested by the embassy in London and the Saudi or the Qatar embassy in London. And then the same thing will have to happen again when you get in country. So there are a lot of things that need to happen, most of which will happen before you move over. And it, you can't really speed up the process. It does just take a while. So what would I say about that? Don't resign from your current job until you actually have your visa and your flight ticket, because visas can, can take quite a while. When I was moving to Qatar, it was just after COVID. So visas were actually stopped. And, and sometimes embassies will 
reach a quota and they would just stop issuing visas and you could be delayed by a month or two for that. There could be a lot of unknowns. So don't resign from your job until you're almost here, I would say. And yeah, if you factor that in, then you know what to expect. And then it's easier to be patient. It will happen. It it just really takes some time. In terms of putting your best foot forward, all of my interviews, and, and there were many, particularly for Saudi, maybe six or seven rounds before I was actually uh, offered a role. You know, most of them will be online. All of mine were remote. I wasn't expected to come to the country, but that is not true of everyone. Sometimes they may bring you over for a face-to-face. So, you know, put your best foot forward to really sell yourself. Tell them everything that you've done and And I think, you know, a lot of us who come here, it's because we're interested in different countries and cultures. That passion for, you know, really understanding what it's like to live and work in the Gulf and to get the the most out of it. Even if you're on an employee contract, probably maximum is about three years. Most people don't have contracts that just run and run. So, you know, you really want to just get as much of you as you can out of it, both personally and professionally. But don't give up. You know, it's the goal. Things take time. You just have to keep going, keep going, and eventually you'll get here. <laughs> Wonderful. And, you know, I'm really hearing there sort of the importance of patience and sort of keeping that resilience up throughout the months that it takes to, to get there. Because certainly for your experience, Sarah, you know, it's worth the wait. It is. It is worth the wait. It's uh, it's it's a wonderful opportunity. I mean, I think for me, I've always been very passionate about working in different countries. And I worked in India for four years with the British Council and then moved to Qatar and, and then moved to Saudi after that. And I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love London. I love home so much. But I think, you know, being a librarian as well and being exposed to information and maps. I'm a big fan of maps. Knowing about all of these areas and just having this kind of passion, this thirst for knowledge, information. What is it really like when you're there? You know, how can I try this out? It just gave me a a global focus and a a real passion to to want to work in these countries. And, you know, it took me a while. It's It's a fairly recent thing for me. I've been working overseas now as an expat for six years. But, you know, For the 25 years before that, I wasn't. So that's another big piece of advice. You know, if you think, oh, maybe I'm too old for that or I should have tried before I've missed the boat, you haven't. There are people coming out here and working out here for the first time and they're in their late 50s. There's no reason why you can't try it later in life. Similarly, there are people out here who have just graduated and they're 21. So there's a whole range. But if you really want to do it, you know, they say, don't they, that you you always look back and you regret those things that you didn't do. And I think working in different countries and cultures, if that's something you really want to do, I know for me, I, I would have really regretted that I, I hadn't done that in my career. So yeah, just if it's something you really want to do, just make it happen. Amazing. It's something that's coming across very strongly through this conversation is the importance of relationships, whether that's sort of building relationships to work productively in the Middle East and labor market. But also something you were mentioning earlier, Sarah, with the um, it was through LinkedIn and your professional network that you secured this job opportunity. So do you have any sort of advice or suggestions for building your professional network in the sector that you're working within? Yes, I do, Edwin. Thank you. So just to to recap my previous three positions, all of which have been overseas. So India with the British Council and then in Qatar and and now in Saudi, they've all been uh, not through uh, application on my part. They've all been through executive search agencies contacting me um, in LinkedIn. The first time it happened, I, I did think it was a scam because I, I didn't realize that LinkedIn, to be honest, was that effective and that powerful. But obviously now I realize that that does happen and obviously does result in the jobs coming to fruition. LinkedIn is a very powerful tool. I think, you know, it's very important to keep your profile relevant and up to date. If you like to write, post on LinkedIn, have a blog, write about things that you're doing at work, build those connections. I think that really helps as well. Uh, Recruiters do look at LinkedIn. They do hire um, executive search agencies to find you um, and they will look at what you've published on on your profile. 
Um, so I, I can't um, underestimate the impact that that has if you're looking for a role, particularly overseas. Um, Similarly, I think um, being present is really important. You know, if you have an opportunity to present at a conference, for example, publish something in a journal, that, that's a lot easier these days than it used to be. You know, publishing peer-reviewed articles in journals of good standing is actually very easy to do. About 10 years ago, that would have been quite difficult, but it's not now. You know, put yourself out there, publish don't think, oh, I'm not an expert on that. I can't do it. Everyone will be interested in what you have to say. Just, you know, write something, ask to go to a conference, ask to present. If you say you, for example, there's a particular region or a particular country that you're interested in, find out how you can connect with that company. What are they doing? Where are they presenting? Who's in charge of the sector that you, you want to work in? You have nothing to lose these days, I think. It's a very competitive market by just reaching out and saying, you know, hi, this is what I do. I'm interested in your company. I just wanted to talk to you or, or just connect with you in some way. If they don't respond, then you haven't lost anything. And if they do, then you can really be opening some doors. But I think the onus these days is really on us. If we want something to happen and we want to work somewhere, then we we have to be the ones to go out there and say, hi, you know, this is me. This is what I could do for you. And do you have any openings? Or if, if you don't feel comfortable doing that, just put everything you've got into LinkedIn and perhaps like me, someone will send you a message. That's great. And I really agree with everything you're saying there, Sarah, that, you know, reaching out, sort of having the confidence to just go and talk to people. What have you really got to lose? And as your own career journey has shown, actually, there's quite a lot to gain from sort of having those conversations and putting yourself out there. At the same time, we sort of know that many of our listeners feel quite anxious about networking and putting themselves out there for a myriad of different reasons. So if, um, say, someone was contacting you asking for advice via LinkedIn, what would you be looking for? What would make you more likely to respond to, to that person? Yes. Yeah, so first and foremost, networking can be something that makes people very, very anxious. I used to be like that when I was in my 20s. And then I, I kind of realized that, that life was too short. So I, I kind of trained myself not to be like that. You can push yourself to step outside your comfort zone. And I would just say here that having a degree from the University of London really helps recruiters in any international setting. The same was true when I moved to India. Recruiters love that we have uh, a degree from the University of London because they love London. They're very interested in that. The qualifications you only get at a certain standard. So that already tells that recruiter what level you're at. Um, so you have that credibility behind you. So don't be afraid to wave your <laughs> University of London degree certificate at, uh, at, at your employers, I would say. Um, I mean, for me, I think, it, you know, if somebody was going to stand out, I do, I quite admire people who do that because. It takes a bit of bravery, you know, it takes bravery to put yourself out there, take a risk, say, hey, I, I can do all these wonderful things. And sometimes it's easier for us if we don't do that, you know, and then and then what if we do do that and we get the job and then what if it works? What if we can't do it? You know, all, all, all of these things that I think humans tend to do to themselves, really. And I, I do think, you know, life's a bit too short, really. We should just embrace what we can do. You know, I think I would be interested in someone who was interested in the company. So one of those big questions that I think every everybody has when they're looking at taking someone on is why? Why do you want to work with us? What is it about us that stands out for you? And, you know, don't be afraid of saying, well, actually, it's your company and it's also your country. You know, that is acknowledged. People like that. You know, people like that you want to be part of their country. When I moved to Saudi, I know that a lot of the, the Saudi people that I work with really enjoyed the fact that I wanted to be here. They were like, why, why did you choose Saudi? You know, is it too hot? Are you okay with the desert? Are you comfortable? You know, just it's really pleased that people from other countries would, would want to be part of theirs. So don't be afraid to include that. But obviously do your research, do your homework. Ask yourself, why do I want to work for this company? And then, of course, the other side to that is, what can you give to that company that they don't already have? What do you have? Because everybody has something that's great about them, their unique skill set, 
you know, tell them about yourself and hopefully it will work. If they don't have a position for your skill set, they will tell you and that's okay. And then if they do at a later point in time, then they can contact you from there. I think it's self-belief. You've really just got to, to, to go out there and tell us what you can do. That's wonderful. And I really love your point there, Sarah, about sort of believing in yourself and, you know, putting yourself out there, knocking on those doors and sort of seeing, seeing what happens. And that's probably especially important in a field such as heritage, which, as we know, can often be quite a competitive area to, to break into. And for any of our listeners who are perhaps considering a career in, in heritage, but are currently feeling a bit despondent and perhaps thinking I'm never going to be able to, to break into this sector or establish myself in, in the heritage space. What would you say to them? I would say there are still lots and lots of opportunities out there in, in heritage. Don't be dissuaded. I mean, I think the really wonderful thing about our sector is that heritage in itself is made up of lots of different avenues. So, for example, I started my journey as a librarian. I'm a professionally uh, qualified chartered librarian. And, you know, at the time, I never imagined that a librarian, because we still have a lot of those stereotypes around that job title, could work in India and Qatar and Saudi and, you know, all over the place. Like people call me at home a a traveling librarian. And then, you know, from librarianship, that's just one route into heritage. So you've also got archives, you've got museums, you've got galleries, creative roles, creative director roles. There's really such a myriad of different routes into the profession, which I really enjoy. So in my last two roles, I I don't work as a librarian anymore. I worked as an archivist. And you wouldn't believe the number of people who, when they used to ask me what I did, and I said I was an archivist, they didn't know what that word meant. (laughs) Which has been quite interesting, then trying to explain. And I usually explain it by saying it's a bit like a librarian, but not with books. And everybody understands that. And I have worked in museums and galleries. One of the best things that I've done in my career, I think, was when I I worked in a a museum and gallery and we used an archival collection to create a hologram from the year 1888 from uh, London's Whitechapel. Who knew that you could get some archives, start reading them, put together a hologram from the archive and then put it inside a museum to, to welcome people who came in to the year 1888. So you can do the most amazing things and you don't have to just go through one route. And say you went through the library route, it wasn't really for you. Try museums, try galleries, try try archives and, and just see which, which way that, that works for you. My first degree was history and there are a lot of us in this field that have a history degree. But you know, it can be similar to archaeology as well. My dissertation that I did at the University of London was around some little dog figurines that were in the British Museum, which you could say was a, a cross between history, archives. They had text on them. <laughs> they were engraved figurines and, and that told us a story. So it was also kind of library work. And yeah, if you prefer to fancy yourself as a bit of an Indiana Jones archaeology, there's a huge crossover there. So getting into any of those areas will enable you to move into another one. And if you find it's difficult to move into another one, just ask your, ask your colleagues if you can try a secondment or one day a week trying what's the archive like, what's the gallery like, what's the exhibition space like. Public programs are a brilliant way to get into heritage as well. And there's also quite a lot of freelancers uh, around at the moment. So there's a lot of podcasts on history and archives. There's a lot of TV programs at the moment on things like talking about Sherlock and what did Agatha Christie do and what does she really mean in her books? All of these different types of the sector. It's all heritage. Heritage is basically finding exciting information and making it accessible. And that's what all of us are actually doing and in all of these roles. That's, that's what it comes down to. So there are so many opportunities. And I would say if you're in a career at the moment and you want to get into heritage and you're not quite sure how, try a side hustle. (laughs) I love this new term of of side hustle, which is basically, you know, doing something in the evenings and weekends that's not related to to your main job. And and that can be going back to what I said before, you know, publish a paper, uh, start a blog, um, start looking at something that you find interesting that's of heritage value. 
And, you know, there, there are some really great companies out there who will commission you to write a book. I've been commissioned to write two books with the History Press now, which result to heritage, which is not, again, not as difficult as it sounds. There's a lot of lectures that you can do out there and a lot of history podcasts and just kind of, you know, see how that feels for you before you make that step to, to jump into heritage. But there are a lot of opportunities and a lot actually are overseas as well, because the heritage sector in the UK, for example, is very established. But the heritage sector in some of the other countries, particularly in South Asia and the Far East, is just developing. So I think the big opportunities for the future of the heritage sector might actually be overseas. That is really interesting. And something that's really coming across there, Sarah, is, you know, often we hear about the sort of rather pessimistic future of the humanities and how challenging and competitive it is as a landscape at the moment. But I really like that you are emphasizing, actually, there's so many opportunities out there. And something else that's really coming across to me is how much the humanities is becoming increasingly cross-disciplinary in its scope as well, that there are opportunities as a historian to branch out into archaeology, into museums, into art galleries, into so many different areas. And it sounds such an exciting development of the sector and I can hear your excitement for it coming through, <laughs> which is wonderful as well as, you know, your point there that actually, although the UK market's sort of quite established, actually there are many opportunities around the world where things are starting to sort of starting to grow and develop, which are equally sort of exciting for, for people to explore. And as I'm sort of mentioning, we often hear about the challenging landscape of the humanities and particularly in, in the UK and Europe, it can really feel that the humanities are under threat at the moment. But what do you see as the value of the humanities and how do you feel about the future of the discipline? Yeah, I'm a bit saddened to hear that. When other, obviously, I'm, I'm aware of that, you know, uh, funding cuts to the arts in general and humanities uh, has a part to play in that um, across uh, the UK and, and Europe, really, as uh, as economies kind of struggle, um, particularly to to recover from from things like COVID. I I mean, I guess I'm biased because I I feel like I've been very fortunate to have this career and very fortunate to have the opportunities that that I've had. The humanities is just wonderful, it's all encompassing, really, in terms of everything that it can offer. It very much has a a future, I think, because. So if we take, for example, the Gulf, the two countries that I've worked in, in the past, they've had a slightly different focus. To be honest, they've, they've been focused on things like energy, and that's taken up a lot of their time. And now, because of some recent developments in the makeup of the Gulf, the countries are looking at different aspects. So they might be looking at tourism, for example. And while they start looking at tourism, they suddenly realize, particularly the case with, with Saudi, that, for example, they have some heritage sites, they have some archaeological wonders, they have some things about these countries that they have never exploited before. They never really had to think about it because the focus has been elsewhere. And this is why I say there's so many opportunities out here. So there's a place in Saudi called Al-Ula, which might be new to a, a lot of our listeners, but it's really a smaller version of Petra in Jordan, which, funnily enough, everybody has heard about. And Al-Ula is now becoming, I'm, I'm seeing it while I'm here, a big tourist destination in Saudi. But what is also happening in Al-Ula is exhibitions. They have archaeologists over at the site. They have heritage consultants like me giving talks about the history of that site. Exhibitions are popping up everywhere to tell the story of the country. It's very difficult to tell the story of a country if you don't understand its past. And that's what we do in the humanities, isn't it, really, in, the, in our history degrees. We understand things, information, knowledge, and then we put things together in narratives. We're, we're basically telling stories. And I, I love that, that we can, we can bring things to life. And that is what is happening in countries across the world. And that's why at the moment, the heritage sector is really, really opening up because the shift is changing to, oh, let's understand our country. Let's understand our landscape. Let's understand our history. And so we're all coming over to these countries to, to be part of that. 
having said that, you know, I still think there are opportunities for the humanities in the West. We might just have to work a little bit harder to find them because they are more established. So sometimes you, you're waiting for a vacancy rather than new posts and new, new roles opening up. But for me, the thing that attracted me, I think, to this profession in, in the first place was all about access to knowledge. And it's really interesting when you look back at history, if you try to understand the power of information, knowledge, and you just look, if you look at any country during a time of dictatorship, during a time of unrest, you will probably see that somewhere along the line, somebody is banning and burning books. That's a very common thing that we see. And the reason, of course, that that happens is because information and knowledge is power. People question things, people understand things. And it, it's so important, I think, for the humanities to be that discipline that embraces all of that information, knowledge. And I think in today's climate, where we still, unfortunately, you know, see war, see aggression, understanding the history of countries, their relationships, how they started, where they are, what's important to them, it will help us all to find a way through some of these things which which can be unpalatable at the moment. So yeah, there, there are really important ways that people with humanities degrees and humanities interests can get involved in things. Absolutely. And I really like your point there, Sarah, that, you know, under times of dictatorship and extreme politics, then that often feels when the humanities are most under attack because they are such a force of social change that they encourage us to think critically about the world around us, to think about where we've come from and what we can learn from those lessons of the past. And it's therefore perhaps not surprising that they become such an easy target for more extremist governmental positions, isn't it? Because, of course, they don't want to allow people that freedom to, to think and question and challenge. Yes, absolutely. And, and you know, that's what we are, when we're, we're custodians, we're curators, we're storytellers. And so, yeah, yeah, I mean, you made an excellent point. That's what I was trying to say, and you, you said it so much better. But yes, and that's why I think it's very important that we protect this sector because it has so, so much to offer. And I really think that it will help all of us to be more informed citizens. And, you know, you can, you can never have too much information and knowledge, I think. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. And sort of on that note of information and knowledge, Looking back on your career journey, do you feel you had a plan? I was trying to think about this ahead of our, our podcast today. I'm not sure that I did. I, I think it would sound better if I said that I did, but uh, I'm not sure that's true. I always wanted to do a history degree. So that was a plan that, uh, that, that I had. And, and actually, I combined my major in history uh, with African and Caribbean studies um, way back when I was doing my, my first degree. And that was because I think then I had realized that I was really interested in different countries and, and different cultures. And during my first degree, I also did a secondment, very short secondment with the Book Aid International. And I was really on the warehouse, you know, packing books for us to send over to, to Africa. Nothing hugely exciting, except it was hugely exciting for me because I understood where these books were going. And, you know, I was, I was 18 at the time. I was so young and, and new to all of it. But I understood why we were sending these books and which scores they were going to and who was going to read them, what was going to happen to them. And I think I hadn't realized at that time that that just kind of set the groundwork for, for my career. Um, when I was coming to the end of my history degree, I thought that I would want to be a teacher. That was kind of what I what I thought my career plan was going to be was going to be after a history degree. But actually, uh, I met two two ladies when I was finishing my history degree, and both of them were going to library school, as we called it then, which is basically to go and do your masters in in library and information science. This was a completely new idea to me, and they kind of sold it to me. So all three of us went to another university to do our, our master's degree in library science, and I'm so glad that I did. It was absolutely fantastic. And then I got my very first job as a librarian. I started as a school librarian, and then I moved to a further education, and then I spent a lot of time in university libraries. And then I kind of went back 
to to my roots of you know loving uh, the printed page and passion around that. So I decided to specialize in special collections, rare books, manuscripts. And I did that for a few years when I found out that the University of London has Institute of English Studies was the institute that I joined to study for a, another master's degree, which is quite specific, called History of the Book. And I took that part-time for two years while I was in my current job. And, you know, Edwin, it was just the most wonderful degree course I've ever done. We looked at parchment. We looked at the past. We looked at manuscripts. I know what marginalia is now, which I didn't know before. I kind of know how to work out squiggles of handwriting, you know, paleography is a thing. But we also look at digital technologies, which is also, you know, so important. So really right from from the beginning of writing on stone tablets, which is where the dog figurines came in, all the way up to digitizing material, making use of technology intelligently to do really whizzy hologram type things. And what was also great about that was that um, I'm still in touch on a regular basis with uh, two friends that I met on that course. And I'm sure they won't mind me saying they're both in their late 70s. And when they finished the course at the University of London, they continued to do a PhD at the University of London in book history. And I, I also am in touch with my tutor. So that was more inspiration of, you know, you can carry on and learn more about this in your 70s by doing a PhD, which was just fantastic. Uh, yeah, that's kind of then what happened. And then once I got the uh, University of London degree, that was really my ticket into overseas work. So when I had that, I was able to really establish myself as an expert in that particular area of my field. And that's what really got me the job was, was British Council and so on and so forth. So did I have, did I plan all of that from the beginning? No, I think I, I think it was organic. And the one thing that I, that I've tried to do across my whole career is take opportunities. I look for them. You know, is there an opportunity here? What's that person doing over there? How do I move across into that? If somebody offers me an opportunity, more than likely I'll say yes, because you haven't got anything to lose, really. And so I think I always had that passion for humanities. I always had that passion for overseas cultures and, and countries. And then it organically moved from my passion. So I would say, don't worry if you don't have a fixed career plan. Most of us don't. But if you just have some idea that you either want to move to the sector or you want to start off in the sector, that's good enough. And then things will organically evolve if you, you keep yourself open to, to opportunities that are there. Sometimes they're right in front of us and we, we don't always see them. <laughs> I really agree with that, Sarah. And, you know, often people will say, oh, you need to have a plan. You need to know what, exactly what you're doing. And perhaps I'm a bad careers consultant, but I never feel that be true. And, you know, and I often say to, to students and clients that I work with, the, the sort of frozen two school of career planning that just do the next right thing, as they say in that film. And often yeah. that's all you need to do. You don't need to plan five, 10, 20 years into the future. You just sometimes need to think, OK, what's my next step? And let's see where things go from from there. Plus, as you've said throughout the discussion today, Sarah, you know, networking, knocking on doors, having those conversations and things will begin to open and, and spread from that if you make yourself available for those opportunities. Yeah, uh, I couldn't agree with you anymore, Edwin. I mean, uh, the people that I see here, there's a, there's, a, there's a bus that takes us from our houses to our office. So there's a bus group of people that I see every morning and the faces keep changing as new people are being recruited. And I like to talk to people, even though that's about 6.30 in the morning. And I do say, why are you here? How did you get here? And people don't say, oh, you know, I had a 10-year career plan. So 10 years ago, I knew that I was going to move to Saudi and do this role, which didn't exist, you know, et cetera, et cetera. They don't really know how it happened. They were like me. They were working in a role. They thought that might be interesting. They were either approached or they approached someone. And then they ended up here. It was not a plan. and. I still find it really interesting when you go to those interviews and they say, where do you see yourself in five years time? How anyone can possibly answer that? Because work is like life. It's so unpredictable. Mm -hmm. It's so fluid. 
I don't. So if you ask me that now, Edward, where do I see myself in five years' time? My honest answer, I have absolutely no idea. Hopefully still working in the same sector, but doing what and where, I honestly, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. So it is just that, isn't it? It's making yourself available for opportunities. I know there's a really great quote that I actually think about quite a quite a lot. It's it's on the wall in my office. And it goes something along the lines of if somebody offers you an amazing opportunity and you're not sure if you can do it, say yes and then learn how to do it later. And I you know, it's not exactly Plato, but it's really helped me, you know, if I think, oh, when I moved from uh, librarianship to archivist, I didn't know if I could do that. Would I be accepted? Because I'm actually a librarian. I'm not really a, an archivist. But it's all access to information. It's just information in a different way. And I thought, I don't know if I can do it, but I'll find out. It's so important, I think. If you want to do it, but you're self-doubt or you're worried, or maybe if I just had a bit more experience, just do it. What's the worst that can happen? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I'm certainly not judging your quote. I went for Disney, so. <laughs> I, I didn't mind Richard Branson, so uh, there you go. <laughs> Not so. um, we've spoken sort of a lot there about the positives and the optimism. And now sort of to flip that a little bit, have there been any setbacks or failings in your career so far? And if so, how did you manage that at the time and sort of get past those setbacks? And possible what did you learn from that yes Edwin there, there have been I think you know the the other side of of taking risks is that sometimes the risks might not work you know again is I think very true in life as it is in work yes I've had projects which I thought you know would would work out fine and then the budget gets cut priorities change around you you know in those scenarios there's really not much that you can do you know a factors outside of your control which means maybe these these wonderful ideas have not come to fruition i've applied for funding when i was in the uk i used to spend a lot of time applying for funding that's kind of what you do in the uk to give your service an extra helping hand and they haven't always worked you know i've put together this beautiful bid that i think is absolutely wonderful and the funders didn't agree and I didn't get the funding, so I couldn't do the project. And what did I learn from those setbacks? Try again. <laughs> Just keep trying. From this particular example of a funder, I did try again at another time and I did get the funding. You just you just never know. There will always be setbacks, I think, at work, really. Yeah. And if there aren't, maybe maybe you're not challenging yourself enough. There will always be things. They don't work. There, there will be a stakeholder that doesn't agree that that project should go ahead. You know, there may be a staff member who just really just doesn't buy into what you're trying to do. There are lots of great ways of, of dealing with that and, you know, getting these people to, to work with you. But, you know, uh, yeah, I think we, we always have things that uh, don't necessarily go our way. And then we, you know, we, we find a path through it. I think... You know, particularly working overseas, resilience is really, really important in in your work and, and also in, in your personal life. When you come to these countries and you, you've never been here before and you don't know what to expect, you know, and oh, and then you, you can't work out how, I don't know, the microwave works, the writing's different and, and all of that. It's resilience, really. It's all about, you know, just don't quit. Just rephrase or start again. Ask for feedback. I mean, if it's not something obvious like the budget's being touched, but something else didn't go your way, just just try and, you know, ask, what could I have done better? What went wrong? What would you like to see next time? Try not to take things too personally, I think, in life and at work. I think that's something that I've kind of discovered over the last 50 years. A lot of the time that things that don't work out have got little to do with you. And a lot of the times with outside or environmental circumstances that, that you can't change. But everyone will have a setback at some stage and you just you keep going. Try something else or try it again. Absolutely. Very wise words. And we had a um, training session several months back and we invited in a psychologist to, to come and talk to us. And something that she said which always stuck with me was, you know, break down things into three columns. What 
are the things I have direct control over? What are the things that I can influence, but may not be able to change directly? What are the things that I have zero control over, but I need to learn to accept and work with? And I think that's quite a useful way to think about what you've just described there, Sarah. What are those things that actually something, you know, funding being cut is something I have no control over. I've got to work with that situation, but applying for funding, maybe that's something I can do differently next time or think how I might learn from that experience. Exactly. Yeah. No, I I love that. I might use those three columns myself, actually. which was things I can't I can't control and refuse to accept but will just be upset about forever the psychologist was not impressed by my yeah I can see how that would not be the approach that she would be looking for and Anthony you've just made me think of something there and I should say just in case it's useful to to your listeners the big difference between funding bid fail and funding bid success was collaboration This is huge in the UK, but it's also becoming the norm in other countries too. If you collaborate with partners, so, you know, I want this funding for my service, but the organization over there uh, also needs it. And we're going to do something collaborative. Funders absolutely love that. And you've got much more of a chance, I think, of success if it's going to benefit the community as a whole or the sector as a whole, um, than if it's just going to benefit one standalone organization. And that's something, Edwin, you'll be familiar with that our profession and humanities is great at, which is sharing knowledge amongst ourselves and being collaborative, which is exactly the same as this Middle Eastern culture where you build these relationships. Um, If you're going to do something like that, we can do a really ambitious project, find some partners, get other people on board, do these things together as a group and funders will be much happier to give you funding in my experience (laughs) that's fantastic advice and it's been a really interesting trend in this series of the podcast that all of the humanities graduates that i've had the pleasure of speaking to have spoken about the importance of the human connection and we've spoken quite at length about sort of finding the human in the humanities and it's really interesting to hear how that has become part of our discussion today as well and as you've just said there sarah as humanities graduates, we're naturally quite good at working with other people and collaborating. And as you've also shared throughout the discussion today, lots of really interesting ways in which you can combine the human with the technological. You mentioned the hologram that you developed sort of for 1888 and how you're pushing the bounds of technology, but always with that human-centered approach. I love that, Edwin. I like the human in humanity. And I can't believe that in 50 years, I've not realized that. Of course, it just pretty much embodies, as you say, everything that I've been talking about, which is, yeah, it's really, really central uh, to to what we're doing. I think, you know, the the days of not communicating or or being more introverted at work, they, they have gone. I think nobody achieves anything really by standing in the shadows these days. But I love that. <laughs> oh, that's, that's a pleasure. And My final question, Sarah, is that this podcast is going to be heard by one of three different types of listeners. We have those who are just starting out on their career. You know, imagine the 21-year-old fresh out of university looking for their first full-time permanent position. We also have those who are perhaps a bit further along their career journey who are looking to develop or upskill. And we also have those who are looking to change careers entirely, perhaps those with many decades work experience, but who are using their degrees to move into a new sector quite completely. What advice would you give to someone who's listening, who is working through that journey of different career stages? Great, Edwin. Thank you. Okay. So first off, if you are 21 and you just graduated and and just figuring out how to get into the heritage sector, congratulations, because you have got like the best journey ahead of you. And I'm quite envious. (laughs) I just about remember what that was like. So if you're in that bracket, I would say apply for everything that has a heritage focus. Just apply for them all. And I use uh, information professional jobs. Uh, That's what it's actually called. It's part of SILIP, which is the Chartered Institute of Library and Information Professionals. There's lots of jobs that come up there. Um, If you're in the UK, there are also specific agencies for library and information and archival work. 
And there are actually agencies who deal international as well. And one, there's one particular agent called CBS Resourcing, who have a lot of heritage roles, but they also have at least 50% of their heritage roles are based overseas. So you've got those kind of two avenues there. But yeah, apply for as much as you can. Don't uh, pigeonhole yourself too much, I think, when you're first starting. It will be easy to move. You know, if you're in your 20s and you start as a, I don't know, a curator, for example, and then you decide that you want to work in public programs or you want to work in a, in a gallery, you want to work at the British Museum or something like that, um, you know, it's transferable. At that age, those skill sets are transferable. So um, don't pigeonhole yourself. I only want this kind of job. You, you probably have to start, you know, in the lower role until you, you build yourself up to become senior. That's okay. That's we, we all did that. That's not a problem. You know, after two or three years, you can move to the next one and the next one. I found that progression in the sector happens quite quickly if you have that passion to get there. So don't pigeonhole yourself and apply for all of it. That's that one. The second group, that's a group that I've been in myself when I decided that what I needed to get to the next stage in my career was I needed another string to my bow, which was my master's degree that I did at the University of London. Um, so it may be that study or publication or presenting at conferences, something like that will help you to get to the next level. Um, because sometimes I think in the heritage career, when we get to the to the middle part, uh, we know where we want to go, but we can't quite make the the jump to to the senior role. Sometimes it's easier to do something outside of work and then apply it inside work to help you to springboard to the next level. Uh, that's certainly what I did. So so have a look. Is there a a degree course or a or postgrad or or something that can help prove to your seniors that you're ready? For the next step. Um, and the third one was moving into the sector from another role. Um, humanities is, you know, really transferable. Every, everything that we do, like you were saying, Edwin has that human connection. So we're really, we're talking to people, we're curating, we're putting on exhibitions, we're explaining what information and knowledge is, and we're making it available. So if you do anything that is related to relationships, or indeed, if you are in the tech sector, digital technologies in the heritage sector is evolving at a pace that I can't even begin to tell you. Everything is very, very digital. And that's a very important part of our sector as well. So if you want to move into uh, digital technologies in a more creative director kind of way, it's very transferable. So I would say map your skill set on paper to what so you want to do in heritage. And then you just have to demonstrate how you can do that. I think as recruiters, we are quite open uh, to people moving across into the sector. Um, and I know personally quite a few people who have done that um, in their later years who have, who have moved across because they really wanted to just do something more creative um, or they were inspired to be, to be a curator. So yeah, it's definitely possible to do. It's not a closed market, but you just have to, you just have to demonstrate to the employer because they won't do that bit for you, how what you've gained already in your other career maps across. How is it transferable? And then you do your best interview and off you go. <laughs> That's absolutely wonderful. And it's something that we often say to students, do the thinking on the behalf of the employer. You know, they don't make them do the work for you, but do the working out and show them why you're a good fit. And it's really great to hear you saying the same point there. And this has been such a fantastic and genuinely uplifting conversation today, Sarah. Absolutely, Edwin. I agree with all of that. And these things are a journey, yeah. aren't they? It's not always going to be a straight road. You know, maybe you're going to have to kind of zigzag your way there. But I, I really do believe, and from my own experience and from my colleagues that I've met, that the ones that you mentioned there, it was such a source of inspiration doing their PhDs in their 70s and presenting all over the place, writing papers and doing just the best things. You know, it, it really isn't too late. All you need, all you need, I think, really is self-belief and passion. You have to really want it. And then you, you go after it. You, you'll find, you will find, you'll find a way in, even if the journey is not completely a straight road. There are lots of opportunities out there. And, you know, it, you just have to keep trying. If you apply for 10 jobs and you don't get anywhere, that's okay. Apply for another 10. Uh, you know, these things are not personal. And sometimes, sometimes a bit of luck is involved. 
But as you were saying, Edwin, it's our job, I think, to tell the employer what's so great about us. You know, why should they pick you over somebody else? What makes you stand out? And we all have something that nobody else has. So you have to find that and then tell people about it. And hopefully you'll end up where you want to be. (laughs) Wonderful. And I can't think of a better way to end today's discussion than that. Thank you so much, Sarah, for your time today and for speaking to our wonderful students all around the world. Thank you so much, Edwin, and good luck, listeners. <laughs> this was the seventh season of the Global Career Calls podcast brought to you by the University of London Career Service. You can find our episodes on your favourite streaming platforms, including ACAS, Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, and many more. All links and resources mentioned by our host are in the episode notes. This episode was hosted by Dr. Edmund Ma, edited by Bushra Janu, and introduced by me, Sneha Ramanathan. We'll publish more episodes in the following weeks with some inspiring stories from our global graduate cohort, so please subscribe. Thank you for listening, and join us next time for a new Global Careers Call.